Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome everyone to episode 65 of True Blue Crime. My name's Sean and with me as always is my co-host Chloe. How are you doing this week? All right. I'm more interested in whatever led you to the chuckle that you did just before we press record, to be honest. (laughs) What have you got to talk about? (laughs) I've got some mind-blowing facts for you this week. Supermarket chain-based facts. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right. you ready? Yeah. Give it your best shot. Do you know what the K in Kmart stands for? Oh, you know what? I read about this when I got my mind blown the week before with Woolworths. I don't, but I don't know. I don't know it. I don't remember it. What is it? It uh, doesn't actually stand for anything. Sorry to sort of let you down oh. there, but it's uh, it, it sort of in a roundabout way is named after the founder, guy, uh, US company's founder was named Sebastian Sparing Kresge. Um, so the letter kind of represents his last name, I think, um, but he passed away three years before the first store opened in Australia. So, ah, um, ah. yeah. There's there's something else I should, <laughs> we'll follow it up. We'll do a weekly supermarket chain update, <laughs> but there is one that it's called Something Something Holdings and that's the name of it and it doesn't really also make sense. Someone from New South Wales or somewhere else where they've always named it that will know, as they did with Big W. But, um, I mean, I feel kind of bemused by what you told me, so thanks, I guess. <laughs> it's not as exciting as your revelation, <laughs> admittedly, but I thought I'd just try and bring something to the table. <laughs> appreciate the effort. <laughs> uh, we got some Patreon shout-outs this week. Yes, thank you so much and welcome to Tash Z, Dan Hubel, Ali Hayes, Fiona MacArthur, Dan Ma and Madeline Neal. Thanks for the support, everyone. Much appreciated. The case we are discussing today contains discussions of crimes against young children. Some of the content is difficult to hear, so we'd encourage our listeners to exercise self-care when listening to this episode. Today we're talking about a tragic case from Western Australia, one that's not particularly well known outside of WA, to be honest. It doesn't have the same profile as other similar cases, such as Daniel Morecambe's, but it's every bit as terrifying. It's a case that's unsolved, but in recent times has seemingly gained some traction with recent police reviews and a brilliant eight-part doco series called The Boy in the Blue Cap 
by investigative journalist Kristen Shorten. Kristen did this doco in 2019 for the Western Australian newspaper, and we'll talk more about it as we go along, but it has really shone a light on a case that needs it. Now, hopefully our retelling of it can help a little bit in that regard too. Let's wind back to the late 90s, 1997 to be exact. In Australia, John Howard was PM, Pauline Hanson started the One Nation Party in Ipswich, Queensland, Jeff Kennett opened the Crown Casino in Melbourne, BHP cut 2,500 jobs in Newcastle, the devastating Threadbow landslide happened, leaving 18 dead, Stuart Diver, the sole survivor, and little Jaden Lesky went missing around this time in mid-1997. He was later found, murdered, a case we'll cover in a couple of weeks' time to close out the year. It's a very well-known case. But one that's far less well-known occurred around this same time out in the West, in suburban Perth, as spring made way for summer, and the Ross family were enjoying a family holiday. Tuesday, 14th of October, 1997. Rockingham, Western Australia. After a chilled-out morning, the bright sunshine was beckoning 11-year-old Gerard Ross and his 12-year-old brother Malcolm. Their mum, Cyrese, was happy for the boys to go for a wander. They were getting rambunctious being inside, housebound and full of energy. Gerard and Malcolm had spotted a comic book store down by the beachfront over the past weekend. This was only eight or 900 metres down the road from where the family was staying at number 105 Kent Street. Cyrese let the boys be on their way, $5 each to spend in an envelope which Gerard carried as he walked, while Malcolm strapped on his rollerblades. It was around 9.30am as Stuart, the boy's father, was fitting some car seats to the family car in the driveway. He saw Gerard and Malcolm's legs pass as they walked down the driveway and turned into Kent Street. A short way down the road at around number 99, Malcolm cruised past his younger brother on his rollerblades and called out that he'd meet him at the comic store. But this was the last time Malcolm ever saw his brother Jared. The Ross family were originally from Scotland. They moved to Australia around 1990 when Malcolm was five and Jared was four and their youngest Beth was two, and initially they just visited Australia for a working holiday, but as often happens when travelling abroad, you can fall in love with the place. And it was over in the West that this happened to the Ross family. Stuart got an opportunity to work in the mining industry, some decent coin to be made there at the time, and the family moved to Newman in the Pilbara region. This is some 10 to 12 hours northeast of Perth. Newman is a small, tight-knit community, and the Ross family immediately felt at home there. All the kids settled in well, the older boys going to South Newman Primary. Jared was a happy and bright kid. He always had a smile on his dial. He was very mature, polite, and creative, loved his art, and was said by his teachers to be quite gifted in this area at his young age. In October of 1997, the Ross family went on a two-week holiday to the beachside suburb of Rockingham in Perth's suburban sprawl. This holiday was extra special because the Ross family had relatives from Scotland coming over for a visit, the kids' auntie and grandmother, and they met on the Sunday. 
Indeed, it was Grandma who bought the two car seats that Stuart found himself fitting to the family vehicle on Tuesday, October the 14th. The Ross family were expecting the arrival of two more little ones. Cyrese was six months pregnant with the twins, so it was a very exciting time for the family. Over the weekend, the family had caught up and spent some time together. Jared had bought a couple of mad comics from the local market up the road, and this was when he and Malcolm had spotted the comic book store, which they wanted to visit. Kent Street, where the family was staying at a rental owned by Greg Simpson, was an older but relatively attractive and leafy street, a safe area, and the family had wandered down to the beach and got ice cream since they'd been there. The boys were familiar with the surrounding region. And that's why, as was normal at this time, the 11 and 12-year-old boys got the all-clear from their folks to head down the road, only under a kilometre away, to grab a few comics. But as we know from the introduction, somewhere along the way, things went horribly wrong. Jared and Malcolm left around 9.30am, as we said. Jared was wearing a black Adidas t-shirt, blue-green baggy shorts, Puma basketball boots and a navy New York Yankees cap. Malcolm sailed past his brother on his rollerblades, saying that he'd meet Jared at the shop, but as we know, that didn't happen. Somewhere between 99 Kent Street, where Malcolm passed his brother, and Comic World, Jared Ross vanished. Malcolm went southwest, passing a nearby servo, before turning right into a small park. He stopped here and took off his blades, donning his normal shoes to walk into the comic store. He waited in this spot for a while for Jared to catch up, but when he didn't show, Malcolm assumed he had gone another way and straight to the shop, maybe down along the beachfront or something. An hour or so went by, Malcolm went to the shop and waited around for his brother to show, but when he didn't, he went back home and told his parents that he couldn't find Jared. Stuart and Cyrese took Malcolm back down the street to the comic shop, expecting to find Jared there, but he wasn't. They walked the surrounding streets looking for him, then down to another small set of shops, all to no avail. After searching for some time, panic began to set in for Cyrese and Stuart, and they reported Jared missing to the police. This was around 1pm by this time. Police advised them to look around one of the big shopping centres nearby, as it was a good chance he'd gone there for a browse and perhaps gotten lost. And if he wasn't there, to come back to the station around 6pm. So the Rosses did just that. But they knew that this was out of character for Jared. Deep down, they knew something was seriously wrong. This was totally out of character for him. As we said, he was a sensible, smart kid, mature for his age too. And he was 11, so more aware than a little kid here. He knew how to get around the local area. It wasn't adding up. And the family's concern quickly became panic and then frantic when they couldn't find him at the big shopping centre or after driving around the surrounding streets. They couldn't find Jared by 4pm and reported back to the police who attended their temporary residence at Kent Street between 5 and 6pm. Here, the police encountered a noticeably distressed Ross family, a scared and confused brother and sister, a stoic father and a crying pregnant mother. The family knew something had happened and had that sick, unbearable feeling that's honestly hard to even imagine, let alone experience as they did. Searches began right away. Major crime squad detectives were called in from the get-go because of the possibility of abduction. But SES and police also searched nearby scrubland, beaches, etc., and while sightings began to come in, people had seen Jared on a bus, for example, 
The Ross family knew it wasn't him. He had no reason to be on a bus. He was going to the comic store. He was familiar with this street, but, you know, not the broader area outside of that. He wasn't from the region. He didn't know anyone. He had no mates nearby. In the days that passed, the search for Jared intensified. The police questioned neighbours going door to door in Kent Street and surrounds. They searched homes and yards. Motorists were checked at blocks that sprung up overnight. Mounted police were brought in, recruits to aid in the search efforts. Police air wing and sea searches were also conducted. Infrared had been introduced at this time on aircrafts, which police used to scour bushland at night. Missing person flyers were plastered all over Rockingham and dropped into residents' letterboxes. Information caravans were established and real estate agents were approached for access to search vacant properties. But all that turned up was CCTV from the Gull Rockingham showing Malcolm riding past the servo on his rollerblades. But Jared never went by. Cyrese, six months pregnant, and Stuart faced the media to plead for information on Jared's whereabouts, desperate for their little boy to come home. Detective Senior Sergeant Greg Balfour was appointed the family liaison officer and remained the conduit with the family throughout the investigation. It was clear to him they were extremely distressed. Stuart was putting on the brave face but hurting deep down. Cyrese was beside herself. Beth scared for her brother. And Malcolm had become quickly withdrawn, a sick feeling, knowing that something had probably happened to his brother. As time went on, the search area broadened to encompass more of Rockingham, but no lead surfaced, giving police any more of an idea as to what might have happened to Jared. How was it possible, within the stretch of eight or 900 metres, that a young boy of 11 had simply vanished into thin air, without a trace, in broad daylight at 9.30am on a Tuesday morning? While Jared's family clung to hope, His friends at school did the same, putting his gear out on his table each and every day over the next two weeks. There was an underlying hope that he would show up. Whoever had him, maybe they would let him go and he'd come back. Unfortunately, that wasn't to be the case. Greg Balfour, working tirelessly like all of the police officers on the case, received a call around two weeks after Jared had disappeared. It was a call that no police officer wants to get, with a message that he had to relay to Stuart and Cyrese. And that was a message that no parent wants to hear. On October the 28th, in the early hours of the morning, horse trainer Michael Miller was riding one of his horses through the Carnip Pine Plantation. This was around 20 kilometres or 12 miles outside of Rockingham. Entering via a dirt track on the corner of Stakehill Drive and Beldivis Road, Miller was riding high in the stirrups when around 300 metres down the track, he spotted something in the bush by the roadside. It was a body and no real effort had been made to conceal it. Miller's horse spooked at the sight and smell and he promptly contacted authorities who attended the scene. The body was quickly identified as Gerard Ross, and it was after this discovery Greg Balfour was informed and he had to visit the Ross family to break the news. He found Cyrese and Stuart walking along the beach. Cyrese broke down upon hearing the news. Stuart, undoubtedly just as devastated, kept a brave face 
and later said he was relieved to know that Jared had been found and wasn't suffering. The news hit the Ross family hard. It also took a toll on investigating officers, the local community and the community back in Newman. The Ross family returned to Newman after a local service was held. This was hard for them to do, go back home without Jared. But the sense of community provided them with some small comfort. Jared's official funeral was held back in Newman and he was buried there at the Newman Cemetery. Cyrese was still heavily pregnant. Beth and Malcolm returned to school where there was a lot of chat about what happened to Jared chat that they just didn't know how to respond to. It must have been incredibly difficult for them to deal with. For the Ross family, life would never be the same. But there was some happiness injected into their lives when Cyrese gave birth to twins Rebecca and Rachel. This, in a lot of ways, brought the family back together emotionally. It gave them some love again and positivity. And they later commented that the girls coming along really helped them all through an otherwise dreadful time, coping with the loss of Jared. Eventually, Stuart's contract expired and the family decided there was nothing left for them in Newman and they returned to Scotland. The details of Jared's death, how he was killed, have not been released. Police are still tight-lipped about that for obvious reasons. There's been no confirmation if he was sexually assaulted either. Another strange thing was that many locals, including Michael Miller, frequented this area and hadn't seen Jared's body in the two weeks beforehand. This area was often used by people walking dogs. Other horse trainers used it regularly, motocross riders as well. It was strange to locals that no one had seen the body. This led to speculation that Jared had been killed someplace else and dumped there later. But police later stated from medical advice that his body had likely been dumped there not long after his abduction. Within a couple of days, I gathered. I didn't infer he was killed there, but his body had been there for the majority of those two weeks. As we said, the details of Jared's death are not known, but we do know that police collected some 5,000 pieces of physical material from around the scene as evidence, some of it valuable at the time, potentially more so nowadays with improved forensic testing, There was evidence recovered suggesting Jared had been in contact with a dog prior to his murder. Red blonde canine hairs were found on him. This was one piece of info made public. Operation Shoalwater was established at this time and it was now a murder investigation and detectives began interviewing a broad range of local offenders, members of the public and potential witnesses. Over a thousand people had their statements taken And from this, we'd hear a few interesting incidents and sightings. Firstly, a report surfaced about a man who'd approached another young 11-year-old boy at a bus stop in the weeks before Jared's abduction. This wasn't the only report along these lines. This middle-aged man drove a beige sedan and apparently offered the boy a lift, to which he declined. He told his mum, and they didn't report it at the time, they thought very little of it because, you know, the guy just drove off, but after hearing about Jared's case, they changed their view on that and reported it to the police. This report prompted the evolving police theory that Jared had either been lured or forcibly abducted from the street in between 99 Kent Street and Comic World. The discovery of the dog hair fed into this. As it was hypothesised, this was a common technique used by predators, to use a dog to lure kids, come and have a look at my dog type of thing before forcing them into the car. This seemed more likely to police than him being coaxed into a property nearby, most of which they had presumably searched. 
At first, police theorised Jared had been taken from a brick toilet block near the market buildings. This has since been demolished in the early 2000s and has become a car park. But at this time, it was said to be, like most toilets, a dingy little spot on a grass verge that would have made a perfect spot for someone to pull up and grab a child who might have been innocently using the toilets. The Ross family had visited the markets on the weekend prior, as we said, so Jared was somewhat familiar with that spot. Perhaps he'd gone and, and stopped there to use the toilet before heading to the comic book store. But this theory would lose some steam when a report from a local woman came in. Her name was Rose Durek, and she lived on Kent Street. On the morning of Jared's abduction, around 9.30am, Rose was driving to Mandra to visit her daughter. She drove from her house to the corner of Wanless Street and passed something very odd. She saw two men on the side of the road just outside number 68 Kent Street, and they were having an altercation with the much younger boy. It appeared that they were pushing or shoving him into their car. This car was a brown, maroon or burgundy coloured sedan. And the two men, they were in their mid-30s, one with brown hair, the other with lighter hair, which could have been either blonde or greying. The boy had dark hair and was wearing a blue cap. Rose looked in the rearview mirror and reversed back. The two men were now in the car with the boy and there was some jostling or shuffling going on inside, but that stopped and they appeared to look at her. Things seemed to momentarily settle, enough for Rose to not be too concerned upon her second glance. Perhaps they'd had a simple disagreement with their younger relative or something. Whatever the case, Rose, unaware that she was potentially citing the abduction that would lead to one of WA's most brutal unsolved murders, drove off and didn't give it another thought until she heard about Jared's case in the media. In recent years, this has obviously upset Rose greatly. Police at the time, and even in recent times, have interviewed and re-interviewed her, initially working on comfit-style images and placing her under hypnosis too. The big concern about this sighting was that if true, two people were involved, and this breathed life into the fears that a local pedophile ring was operating and had abducted Jared. As far as the official police stance goes, they were unaware of any such rings operating in the region at the time. I think it's important to point out that there was no sex offender register at this time and that it's just a theory that Jared's murder was sexually motivated. Police haven't released information to support that contention. It's quite possible that there was another motive, something like a thrill kill. Another interesting sighting came from a lady who wished to not be identified, but in the Boy in the Blue Cap doco was referred to as Mary. Mary was driving to church towards Rockingham, coming from the Warnborough direction in the east, when on the side of the road she saw an old orange car, which she thought was probably a Datsun. The car was stationary and she saw a young stocky boy dressed in navy blue walk away from the passenger side of the car. She watched him walk to a nearby verge before being coaxed back into the car. The person in the driver's seat didn't get out of the car and she thought that the boy looked confused. So Mary U-turned and followed the orange Datsun as it drove off before it eventually pulled over again on Safety Bay Road. At this location, Mary noticed a white horse float or trailer there and she'd seen this float or trailer around the place before. One other point Mary reported was that the number plate of the car had a 9 at the start, which she thought was odd seeing how old the car was. 
Most cars at this time had eights at the start, so this indicated to her that the car had been over the pits recently. The pits, I gathered, are kind of like vehicle inspections, uh, what we call roadworthies for vehicle registration renewals uh, in WA. So police were able to track this person down off the back of Mary's report at the time and more recently. However, they've been unable to corroborate Mary's sighting and even recently advised her that the man in question, who she knew from the local area and apparently is still around, well, he was supposedly confirmed to have been someplace else that day. So uh, he's been alibied, but Mary isn't convinced of that. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. To say the police were up to their necks in it at this time would be an understatement. Amidst the state's largest ever investigation into the Claremont serial killings, police had 300 persons of interest in Jared Ross's murder. They'd executed morning raids at a number of these persons' houses, conducted polygraph tests, and even looked into the likes of Daniel Morecambe's killer, who was discovered to have been in prison at the time of Jared's murder. A number of suspects emerged from that 300 over the years and a number of those remain, although some have since passed away. One of the first we're going to talk about is a person who we'll call the German Shepherd guy. A witness named Christine Jackson contacted police some years into the investigation when she was reading about a potential coroner's inquest into Jared's murder in the newspaper. The mention of a dog hair being found on the body, one of the few pieces of information made public, triggered a memory of Christine's and she reported it to the police. Around 2009 or 2010, Christine recalled having a conversation with a customer of hers. And this was a nice guy she'd known for around six years. She'd even been out to dinner with him. It was only later that she learned he was a convicted pedophile. And at one time, he remarked to Christine that he really missed their German shepherd. Christine asked what had happened and the dog died and the man responded rather strangely, no, we had to get rid of it because my brother did something stupid. She prompted further discussion around that but the guy clammed up and said he didn't want to talk about it. So this was a very odd comment and very interesting in the context of the dog hair evidence and potential of this guy and his brother being involved to abductors as per Rose's earlier sighting. A couple of other interesting bits of information would come to light in the time after this. Firstly, police confirmed some other fibres had also been found on Jared's body. These could have been carpet fibres, but could have also come from elsewhere. Tire tread marks had also been located near the site in the pine plantation. However, these could have been from other vehicles passing through the area. As we said, this region, although somewhat remote, was used by locals a lot, people who knew the area. But police also confirmed another point. Jared's blue New York Yankees cap wasn't found at the scene. 
Jared was still clothed when he was found, but this hat was never located. So this was a big clue. Had it simply been discarded along the way or had someone kept it? We mentioned the newspaper report before about the coronial inquiry. This is something that still hasn't occurred and indeed both the state coroner and deputy attorney general declined to comment on why this was the case. The theory is that while coronial inquests often help families by providing closure, they don't always necessarily advance the police case and any subsequent prosecution. But sometimes they do. One instance where a coronial inquest was requested and pushed hard for to get the answers for the family was the case of Daniel Morecambe. We mentioned that earlier, and this is a much more well-known case Australia-wide than Jared's, but shares a lot of similarities. Firstly, they were both young lads of similar age. Daniel was 13, Jared 11. They were even somewhat similar in appearance. Both of their bodies had been found in pine plantations too, down desolate dirt tracks. But Daniel's case had obviously occurred in Queensland, across the other side of the country. His parents, Bruce and Denise Morecambe, had pushed hard for a coronial inquest into their son's murder, and this inquest proved to be an example of helping bring the killer to justice. Bruce and Denise, who'd since formed the Morecambe Foundation, received a number of requests asking for them to help in Jared's case. So they did. They reached out to Stuart and Cyrese and wrote to the Coroner's Court of Western Australia requesting an inquest into Jared's death and the adequacy of the police investigation. That didn't come about, but it does lead neatly to the discussion of another suspect in Jared's case. And this guy was actually identified during Daniel Morecambe's inquest. He wasn't the killer in that instance. We know Brett Peter Cowan was ultimately convicted of that murder. But this guy still had some very eerie connections with both cases. Known only as suspect P12, this guy came up during Daniel's inquest because he had a car, a blue Toyota Corona, that looked a lot like the vehicle initially suspected of being involved in the abduction. Brett Cowan also owned a little blue boxy car like this, as did another convicted rapist named Douglas Jackaway. So this was a broad point. But he also looked a bit like the comfit drawing released of the suspected killer, and he happened to be staying at a caravan park in Queensland near to where Daniel disappeared. So a few strange things initially connected him, but as we said, in the end he wasn't the killer in Daniel's case. But some people suspected he may have had some degree of knowledge or involvement. P12 was originally from New Zealand. He was a former bikie and member of the mongrel mob. Interestingly, in 1997, he actually lived in Newman, where the Ross family lived. He claimed he didn't know the Ross family, but he had kids of his own who went to the same school. The Ross family certainly didn't know him. But he was also in Perth around the time of Gerard's abduction too. As we said, this was some 12 hours south of Newman. He was apparently in the area between October 10 and 17, staying at a motel around 50 kilometres away from Rockingham. He told police he'd come down for mental health reasons. His mental state was fragile at this time due to a deteriorating marriage and losing touch with his kids. So his work sent him down for a break. P12 confirmed that he had friends in Rockingham, but he hadn't visited them this trip. Instead, he had gone to see a psychologist to discuss his problems, while binging on drugs and alcohol in between. His psychologist, though, said he didn't visit during this time, and P12 later conceded he mightn't have gone to the appointment. He had no alibi for the day of the 14th. 
Police were only able to confirm he'd been in Perth via an ATM transaction and CCTV of him dropping jeans at a tailor. P12, for his part, said he was shocked and offended to have been brought into question over this. He had kids of his own, admitted to having a violent past, but he wasn't a murderer. And he wanted the perpetrator caught because you can't have people like that walking around and it'd clear his and anyone else's name of any involvement. P12, who's now a truck driver, has spoken to the police many times and he's been vague during interviews and reckons when he was in Perth that day, he only used public transport, he didn't even have a vehicle and he didn't get up before 10.30am, presumably due to his raging evenings on the piss and pills. But the questions around him still remain. Is this guy just a dude with a shady past who has some very unfortunate timing and connections to these areas? Or is there some other reason he'd been in the area around the time of two very similar child abductions and murders? But if you think this guy's strange, wait for this next bloke who we're going to call the Pines Killer. Only two weeks after Jared's body was found in the Pine Plantation, police returned to the scene amidst their investigation and saw a blue tarp there. When they lifted it, they were shocked to see another body. Immediately, and particularly with the Claremont investigation still bubbling away, talk of another serial killer operating began swirling around. But pretty soon that was determined not to be the case. The body was that of 36-year-old mother of three, Chaole Dang Buswell, and her body had been dumped there by her estranged husband, former jockey and taxi driver Terry John Buswell. Allegedly, Terry had done this to make it look like a serial killer was operating in the area, but he later denied having any knowledge that Jared's body had been discovered there or any involvement in Jared's murder too. Buswell said although he and his wife had been separated for around one year, she would still visit him to cook, clean and have sex, and he'd pay her $50 for doing so. But one day he became enraged when she called him too old and broke, so he bashed her to death with a hammer in the bedroom of their home in Huntingdale before disposing of her body in the pines. Buswell was convicted of murdering his wife and given a life sentence. He served 16 years before being paroled in 2015. And although he and authorities officially don't link the two murders, Buswell was alleged to have said to someone upon his release that he'd buried something else in the pine plantation, adding, if you ever want to get rid of something, dump it in that pine plantation. The person who he allegedly made this comment to reported it to police after hearing recent reports and Jared's case in the media. Adding to the suspicion around Buswell was two more reports that have surfaced only very recently. Firstly, another witness came forward to tell police that Buswell had made admissions about assaulting a young boy in the mid-1970s, something Buswell has staunchly denied. When he allegedly said this, the witness told Buswell to keep it quiet as people don't like pedophiles, when Buswell implied he'd been able to keep the boy silent by giving him money. Buswell's alleged victim was contacted, but hasn't reported it because he's moved on with his life. Buswell maintains he's never touched a boy or another man, only women, and that the allegation is rubbish, much like those against Cardinal George Pell, and this apparently occurred within the Catholic setting I inferred. Buswell has also been caught allegedly peeping and prowling in the backyards of neighbours' houses near to where he lives. He again denies anything was suspicious about this, that he had some legitimate purpose for lurking in the bushes of a night, 
Whatever the case, police are obviously well aware of Terry Buswell and have spoken to him on a number of occasions while keeping a close watch on the now 75-year-old. The next person of interest to discuss is a guy we'll call the patient. This report came from a nurse named Annette Fraser, who claimed that between 1999 and 2001, while working one of her regular night shifts, a patient confessed to knowing what happened to Jared. Annette says that she had her pen handy and scribbled down the details the man divulged on her hand, which included his name and date of birth. She then passed the info on to the police officer who was in the emergency department at the time, but about a different matter. This officer had Annette write it down on paper and said that he'd pass it on. She also kept a copy of the notes for herself and years later phoned Crime Stoppers to check that her information had been passed on. But the call centre operator confused Jared's case with another, telling Annette that it had actually been solved. So Annette got rid of her notes, only to become distressed years later when she read another story about Jared's murder still being unsolved in the local paper. So Annette then contacted the officer mentioned in the article, but didn't hear back. She also mentioned it to an off-duty officer she'd met socially, as well as entering the info into a feedback form on the WA Police website. Again, in 2017, when police launched a fresh public appeal for information, Annette contacted Crime Stoppers. This would be her sixth attempt at reporting what she knew. And police have confirmed they have it, it's credible, and they've looked into the patient, but have been unable to identify the man. Hospital records from that time frame apparently don't correlate. Detective Superintendent Rod Wilde had commented that they have no doubt what Annette says is true. It's just a matter of confirming whether what the patient said was in fact true. Last we heard, they had been unable to identify him, something Annette commented that they should be able to do by utilising two Department of Health databases, Edith and Rostar. So what exactly did this patient say to Annette Fraser? She says this man, Caucasian in his 30s, had been brought in unconscious after downing a copious amount of a drug called Tegretol. Suddenly he awoke in the early hours of the morning, sat bolt upright in his bed and said, I know who did it, I know who hurt that little boy. He said he'd been drinking with two men at Quinana the night before, these blokes lived in Quinana, and they'd boasted to him about abducting the 11-year-old in the years prior. So quite compelling, but I can't help but think the hurdles Annette had in reporting this might be its undoing. Hopefully they can identify the patient and the men he implicated, or maybe if this patient is still alive, he comes forward. Until then, this remains just another possibility. The last persons of interest we're going to discuss is a pair who we haven't seen officially connected to this, but I get the feeling police may well have looked into them quite thoroughly. And that's a pair of convicted abductors and child sex offenders named Robert Wheeler and Victor Urquhart. These guys were convicted of luring a 14-year-old boy in 2005 to Wheeler's home with the promise of smoking some pot and playing Xbox. Before taking him prisoner by force and subjecting him to 20 days of sheer terror. This was in Kelmscott, a southeastern suburb of Perth, around half an hour from Rockingham. We won't go into the horrific details of what they did to the young man or name him, but both Wheeler and Urquhart, who is HIV positive, subjected him to repeated sexual assault, forced him to watch both graphic acts and videos and only let him relieve himself in a bucket and shower twice during the three-week period. 
But the young man survives when a real estate agent who'd seen the men talking to the boy prior to his abduction picked Wheeler out of an identification book and police raided their house. 20 days and this boy had been reported missing too. You know, his mum was appealing for his safe return, but this was one of those times it ended well in the broader sense that you know he lived. But he mightn't have because court documents showed Wheeler, a borderline psychopath, and Urquhart had some very dark plans. Sickening notes found inside the pair's home showed they planned to go cruising and pick up a young straight boy, the younger the better, drug and then handcuff them. The notes also detailed, interestingly, when considering their potential involvement in persons of interest in Jared's case, the younger they are, the shorter we'll keep them, unless we snag a homeless one. And when we've finished with them, we want to get rid of them, start doing some snuff and damage them. Make sure we find a safe place to dump them. In 2007, the pair received a maximum term of 14 years. They were both in their mid-40s at this time, making them in their mid-30s in 1997. So if they're both still alive, which one of them, potentially Urquhart, may not be, they might still be in prison or they might be up for release sometime soon, which is a, a frightening thought. If these notes are detailing their intentions, you have to ask, had they done this before? In recent times, the reward for information leading to a conviction in Jared's case has increased from $250,000 to $1 million. Police have conducted internal reviews of the case in 2016 and in 2019, which is still ongoing. They've sought assistance from the UK, criminal profiling professionals and advanced DNA analysis of evidence. Recent reviews have uncovered new information and persons of interest. Alongside the excellent doco series, The Boy in the Blue Cap, we've mentioned throughout the episode. This too has generated renewed interest in the case and fresh tips and leads for police. They believe someone knows something. The killer is still out there and from the region. Recently, police have said they've condensed their suspect list considerably to a handful of primary suspects. They also note they believe the offender acted alone, which goes against a lot of the reports we've heard suggesting two people were involved in the abduction. But perhaps it was just one who crossed the line to murder, maybe the more dominant and psychopathic of the pair. Whatever the case, the Ross family are still dealing with the loss of their boy, Jared. It's had a huge impact on Stuart, Cyrese, Malcolm and Beth, and Rebecca and Rachel, who never got to meet their brother. Our thoughts go out to all of the members of the Ross family. If anyone has any information about Jared's case, please contact Crime Stoppers on 1800 000 or you can report online anonymously if you wish. Police Minister Michelle Roberts has indicated that if someone came forward with crucial information that led to a conviction and they'd had some involvement themselves, maybe as an initial accomplice, potentially there's a possibility of protection from prosecution. But that's it for the tragic case of Jared Ross. Your thoughts, Chloe? Yeah, tragic is right. I think a death in any circumstances is just horrific and a life taken too soon is just beyond imagine. And I find it so scary that so many people could be connected. The persons of interest that we ran through pretty much all fit the bill and all did awful things. Cases like this really make me question humanity I'm glad that we don't know the details of what happened to Jared. It's a horrible fact and made so much worse with the unknown. It's promising that this case seems to have picked up interest in the past couple of years. And I just hope that his family are able to find some peace these days 
and also that they get some answers very soon. That's pretty much it from me. How about you? Yeah, just absolutely tragic. As we always say, you know, our hearts really do go out to the Ross family. But I do get the feeling that this will be solved in the near future. I won't get into all of my theories on this one, Chloe. There's obviously a lot of good potential suspects here, all with with quite compelling links, like you said. A lot of horse-related links. You know, there's jockeys, trainers in the area, horse floats being sighted. I'm not sure if it's just a big horse area, but I'd be interested in knowing how they knew the hair found was actually canine and if it's possible the red blonde hair was potentially equine hair. A lot of these guys appear to be strong suspects. They've all got strong links to the area. You know, we've got alleged confessions, witnesses implicating people. So I'm pretty keen to see in time how this gets narrowed down and obviously we would love to see a resolution here. I'm hopeful we will. Uh, thanks in no small part to the to the tireless police investigation. There's some, some fresh eyes on it in recent years. Obviously back in the day, you know, it sounds like some things might have been missed. There's always that element of, of unintentional human error. But by and large, the reports around the police investigation have noted how thorough they've been and and quite tireless in their efforts. But I think we can also see the importance of the media in this instance too. Now, we often, uh, and it's really easy to do so, but we often slam the media a bit for inaccurate reporting and things like that. But the renewed interest in the work of of Kristen Short and then the Boy in the Blue Cap doco series has really generated a lot of interest, and that's great to see. So, Fingers crossed uh, for a result on this one sometime soon, Chloe. Yeah, definitely. Um, So may as well just jump straight into happy thoughts. What's yours this week? Well, mine is actually that we've finished uh, this episode where you've had such a tough time pronouncing uh, Jared instead of <laughs> Gerard because you were telling me right as we started that you've uh, you've got a, a friend who pronounces it Gerard uh, and you spent, you spent <laughs> quite a long time sort of training your mind from saying Jared uh, to Gerard for for his sake and now you've kind of had to go back on that for this episode. So uh, I feel a little bit sorry for you and that's that's my happy thought that we've now finished that and you can uh, breathe easy. (laughs) You really did it dirty on me then because that is not what you have written down here. (laughs) That's saved for some deep, dark (laughs) blooper reel (laughs) that should not be aired. Um, But, yes, no, my friend has a husband, spelt the same, pronounced Gerard, and it took me a while to get my head around that. Um, Sorry, Gerard, if you listen to this ever, (laughs) I've struggled for so long. Um, But, yes, um, I'm pretty sure I didn't slip up. Check the edit a few times for me, Sean. (laughs) We should should be all right. (laughs) We should be right. Yeah, so do you have a a separate happy thought to that? Are you going to use that as well? (laughs) No, no. Um, Mine is really um, profound this week and that I found a really delicious um, protein ball at the supermarket. I can't even tell you the name of it, but it's in the health food aisle. It's one of those not healthy at all health food aisle things and it's called a hazelnut brownie. And it's got panna chocolate in it, which is like this hazelnut spread. And as someone with intolerances that can't eat a bunch of stuff, to me, this tastes like a Ferrero Rocher, which is like this chocolate truffle thing with a kind of a crispy shell and then a soft middle, which is, I would say, top tier chocolates (laughs) in the world. Um, And I can't eat them because they make me sick for multiple reasons. And this, to me, tastes like it. And I can convince myself I can have it for morning tea because it comes from the health food aisle. So um, 
I'm potentially going to balloon out over the next couple of months because I'm eating <laughs> so many of them. I can't stop myself, but um, I am getting quite a bit of joy out of it. So that's my happy thought. <laughs> good, good. No, you deserve it. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. I, I agree. <laughs> if you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at truebluecrime at gmail.com. You can join our Facebook group, which is called True Blue Crime Podcast. And you can find us on Instagram by searching True Blue Crime. If you'd like to support the show, you can head over to our Patreon page. The link's in the show notes. For $5 per month, you can support the current free content we make on the main feed and get all of our bonus content as well. We've just released a bit of uh, commentary and our uh, reel from the podcast awards, and we're going to be doing some sort of director's cut type stuff, aren't we, uh, coming up yeah. soon? Yeah, um, Yeah. so... On that, we are taking next week off. We are back the next week after with final episode of the year for us before we release our summer series of old episodes. So as Sean's mentioned on a few things, we'll remaster them. We'll do some new intros for these and some director cuts type of stuff um, on Patreon mostly, which will be pretty cool for you guys hopefully over summer while we can recharge a little bit. Absolutely. Thanks again for listening, everyone, and we will catch you all shortly. Thanks, everyone. Bye. He waited in this spot for a while for Gerard to catch up. Wait, is that what we're saying? It's no, we're saying Gerard. Gerard, sorry. yeah. <laughs> Sarah's married to a guy called, he spells it like this and says Gerard, and it's honestly taken me 10 years to learn it. So now. <laughs> okay. Involvement as persons of interest in Gerard's case. <laughs> you said Gerard. The, uh, you said Gerard. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but that's it for the tragic case of Gerard Ross. Your thoughts, Gloss? Oh, Klaus. <laughs> Klaus. Klaus. Your thoughts, Klaus? <laughs> Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.